You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 44, and I hope you are all doing well out there. Now, I normally aim to release new episodes on Sunday, and so most Sunday mornings, I am busy recording these intros and outros and assembling all of the pieces and parts to the show. But this particular Sunday, I went out and I did a little creek walking and queen snaking at a spot about 90 minutes from where I live. Uh, which is a nice thing to do when it's blazing hot and humid here in the Midwest. And all you really need is a pair of old sneakers or water shoes to uh, to do this. And a shout out to Ryan and Kyle Teese for inviting me along. And uh, it was good to see you both again. So on our little creek walk, we saw lots of northern water snakes and a few ringneck snakes uh, and some long-tailed and two-line salamanders uh, and four queen snakes, uh, some of which were basking in trees and or swimming in the, the water, and uh, one was underneath cover. Uh, so it was a pretty good day, finding uh, snakes on land, sea, and air, as it were. Uh, the coolest part for me was having opportunities to watch snakes swim and forage and bask without any interaction at all. Uh, we just watched them being snakes, and occasionally they watched us back. Uh, but, man, that's the best. I love it. Now, as usual, before we get to this week's guest, I want to once again say thanks to all of the show's patrons for helping to keep this entertainment channel rolling along. And if you're out there listening and you want to kick in a few bucks to help out, you can do so via Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash so much pingle. And so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more on that. Now let's get to this week's guest. Dr. Heather Bateman is an associate professor at Arizona State University's College of Integrative Science and Arts, and she had a paper published this year in the journal Global Ecology and Conservation, uh, which was entitled Unwanted Residential Wildlife, Evaluating Social Ecological Patterns for Snake Removals, and that's along with co-authors Jeffrey Brown, Kelly Larson, Riley Andrade, and Brian Hughes. Now, you may remember that I talked with Brian Hughes way back in the dim and distant past about his snake removal business, Rattlesnake Solutions. And if you recall, Brian was amassing a ton of data about snake removals and relocations, and his relocations have been very successful. But some of that data ended up in this paper I just mentioned, uh, among other places. And and so I'm happy I could chat with Dr. Bateman and unpack some of what is a complicated subject. Uh, interactions between humans and serpents. Now, I know that this subject resonates with a lot of you listening to the show because so many of us have been involved with rescuing and relocating reptiles at one time or another. You know, we're earmarked as one of those people, so it comes with the territory, right? And uh, and we've gotten frantic calls from relatives and neighbors and friends and uh, friends of friends and even people we don't know. And uh, Then we go out and we do our best to make sure that there's a good or better outcome for the snake or uh, other reptile that's causing all the commotion. 
Now, I don't get too many snake removal calls here in central Illinois, uh, but in places like Arizona, where venomous snakes come into play, there are enough human-serpent interactions that folks like Brian can operate a snake removal service, and they generate enough data that folks like Dr. Bateman and her colleagues can study those interactions. So let's get to my conversation with Dr. Heather Bateman. Hello, everyone. Today, I am talking to Dr. Heather Bateman. Dr. Bateman is an associate professor at Arizona State University at the university's College of Integrated Science and Integrative Science and Arts. And uh, she is a wildlife ecologist at the bottom of all things. And welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Mike, for inviting me. Happy to talk about all things herpetofauna, maybe? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to keep calling you Dr. Bateman. I'm just going to call you Heather, if that's Please. okay. Please. Okay. So uh, I, I wanted to talk to you uh, about uh, a, a paper that was published just this year in the journal of, let's see, the journal is called uh, Global Ecology and Conservation. And uh, the paper's title is Unwanted Residential Wildlife, Evaluating Social Ecological Patterns for Snake Removals. So uh, that's, a, that's a mouthful. And uh, the reason we're talking about this is because, uh, you know, Buddy was with Brian Hughes, and Brian has a company called Rattlesnake Solutions, and they uh, do a lot of uh, snake removals from uh, residential areas in Phoenix, and I believe Tucson and maybe some other areas as well. And uh, so uh, along the way, he collected a bunch of data. And uh, so Brian is uh, one of the people involved in this paper. And I'm, there are some co-authors with you, obviously. Uh, Jeffrey Brown, Kelly Larson, Riley Andrade. I hope they said that right, Andrade. Mm -hmm. And Brian Hughes. So, uh, so you have some co-authors on this paper. And this paper is not a team of wildlife ecologists. We have some mixed disciplines here in this paper. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. And and I might just say thanks, Mike, for um, inviting me to come on and talk about the paper. Um, it's been probably one of the most fun papers I've ever worked on. Um, so it's been a new sort of focal area in my research. And um, the team of scholars that I worked with and um, and working with Brian has just been a lot of fun. So just a, a shout out to my collaborators. Um, and yeah, you're right. So we do come from different backgrounds. So my background, wildlife ecology, um, I work on um, reptiles and amphibians and birds. And um, Jeff Brown is a postdoctoral scholar, and um, he's interested in uh, human-wildlife interactions and questions related to social science in urban spaces. Kelly Larson is a professor at ASU, and she is a social scientist, and um, she has conducted long-term research in the Phoenix area, um, sending out questionnaires to residential uh, folks, asking them all kinds of questions, and I'll probably bring up that, uh, that survey um, a little bit later. If and you then, don't, I will. Okay, good. Yeah. And Riley Andrade um, started out as a master's student um, working in the lab um, with me and um, our collaborators. And then she got her PhD under uh, with Kelly Larson. And now she's a postdoctoral scholar. And okay. um, 
she started out in ecology, but has really moved into um, looking at the social um, and um, ecological factors related to wildlife. And just a rising star, I'll say, in urban ecology, Riley Andrade, okay. remember that name. <laughs> okay, very good. I've read this paper. I know about this paper. I've, I skimmed this paper a while back, and then last night uh, I really gave it a hard read. And it, it's a very complex paper. For a guy like me who – I read some papers on herpetology and I read things about taxonomy and uh, natural history notes and things like that. And I feel like I have a grasp on most of what goes on in them. But this paper is quite a bit different because it brings in the social, the human social element. So uh, did you also find this – I'm sure it was. you said it was very interesting and an exciting thing to work on. But it was also – Is it was it also complex for – you and perhaps the sociology folks that was complex for them because you're bringing in herpetology? Yeah, yeah. And we might just call them social scientists. Okay. Um, would, yeah. would probably be a better term. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of like partnering with social scientists, the, the big picture is we can look at the role that humans play in urban wildlife um, because Brian's service, this the service that removes snakes, there's somebody that's making a decision. Um, first, a snake has to be there in the first place. And you can think of where snakes are in the city might fall in the realm of the snake's biology and ecology. So snakes are going to be in places where they have food and shelter and within their geographic distribution. But the, the human-wildlife interaction or the human-snake interaction happens because a human saw the snake and they made a decision. So they made an action. And that action has consequences for wildlife. And there's a lot of, of, of actions and decisions that people can make when they see a snake, right? They could let it be. Um, they could move it on their own. Um, they could call somebody, right? So people can make a lot of decisions and those decisions can be important for the, for conservation. And so this was an exciting opportunity to look at not only the ecological factors that might be good predictors of snakes in urban spaces, but also what are some factors related to humans that might also predict where these interactions are going to happen, and so we, we looked at a lot of different data sets. So you, so you can kind of think of these ecological data sets that have to do with the trait of the snake. So is it big? Is it venomous? Also, where is it in relation to some desert open space um, or the density of, of housing? And then we can also look at this um, socioeconomic factors. And so that would be things like income and education and, and demographics of neighborhoods um, where snakes are, are removed. And, and it all ties together with the actual, well, like you say, it's an, it's an event, right? Uh, a snake encounter is an event and then decisions are made. If the decision is to engage with uh, a wildlife removal company like Brian's, then data becomes, data collection becomes possible, right? Because you know you can gather data about the snake itself and, and about the location. And if you know the location, you can also get data about the people involved and the neighborhood they live in. So it all, it all kind of call, comes from one event, which is picking up the phone and 
Hello, Rattlesnake Solutions. I have a rattlesnake in my yard. The other thing that struck me about this is that a lot of people listening to the show understand this because so many people, they get that call um, from somebody down the street or their cousin or whatever. I got a snake in my yard. What do I do? Can you come? You know, so they're they're very familiar with this this whole concept. And people, you know, there's some probably more people listening have done this than have not. So I I, I feel mm-hmm. like that this is this is going to resonate a little bit with them. Sure, and you know, another thing that is important to point out with with our analyses is that we relied on. Um, data sets from like the census, for example. And so the scale you're thinking, you're talking about the data that is gathered at the point of that removal. So yes, we know the snake um, species and we know the location of the removal and we've just deployed um, or, or pushed out a, a survey to the clients of Rattlesnake Solutions. But in this particular paper, the bulk of the data that was available to us was not um, the social demographics of the specific people that called for the removals. And so we had to extrapolate or gather information at a slightly different scale, right? So we use census data um, or census blocks. So for example, we winnowed down the data in Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is, and there's like 250 census blocks. You can think of those as neighborhoods. And in the neighborhoods, right, we can pair that with the snake, the removal data set. So in the blocks, in the neighborhoods, we know how many snakes were removed and what type of snake was removed. And then from the census data, we can look at things like income and education and demographics. And so we can look at what variables at the neighborhood scale might be good predictors of this encounter and removal. And, you know, it's important to always recognize the weakness of, of any research, right? And so um, in a perfect world, we would pair that all to the individual. And that's really hard to perfectly overlap biological data and social economic data. Um, and so one way to do that is through this using the census. We also used some additional neighborhood social surveys. Um, but in the future, so we do have a survey that's deployed right now. And so Brian and his team um, engage their clients and it's everything's touchless now, right? So it's like, hey, here's a link and this is where you're going to pay Rattlesnake Solutions. And at the end, when you sort of see that receipt, um, it'll say, hey, there's some um, researchers at ASU that would like to ask you a few questions about snakes. And so that is going to lead to a whole other data collection that is live right now. And so it's going to ask people question, all kinds of questions about their perceptions and their beliefs about snakes. And then it will ask um, about their um, social demographics if, if they're willing to provide that. Ah, what struck me about this as you're talking is that this happens before the snake is even removed. So uh, you're, you're talking part? about... Uh, the survey. So they're they're giving a survey before, you know, they are they are the is it happening after or before? It's usually after. Yeah. Okay. I think okay. I think that's how Brian has it deployed. Um so the beginning information is like what is your ad you know, whatever rattlesnake right. solutions mm-hmm. collects. And then at the very end, like when the client is done 
um, engaging with Rattlesnake Solutions, then there's like a thank you page. And that's where it says, this is going to take you elsewhere um, if you want to participate in this survey. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very good. And, and the, you know, it's important for studying humans. Um, we go through a, a board review process and there's some very standard language, like it's not going to harm you personally to do the survey. If you have any questions right. about the ethics of um, studying humans, here's the contact number and the data doesn't go back to rattlesnake solutions. It goes to the ah. researchers. Okay. That seems very familiar to me. So I think I've encountered things like this before. Sure. Okay. It sounds like for the, there'll be a finer degree of research in the future with this. So. Yeah, yeah. And we have a, a graduate student, a master's student, that's looking at some more specifics in terms of residential yards and some of the the habitat, if you will, of residential yards that might be more attractive to snakes than others. Um, and that could be helpful in terms, because Brian and his team already does a pretty good job of helping people say, you know, like a snake is going to look at your yard and this area over here might provide cover and maybe that's why the snake is there. Um, and so this could provide a little bit more information on on helping people maybe if they don't want to promote snake habitat in their yard. I see. And so the, the folks call uh, rattlesnake solutions, and the, the end goal result is to the end goal is to get the snake removed. But then uh, they find themselves getting um, schooled, if you will, on why the snake is there in the first place and what they can do to prevent that in the future. So they're, they're learning some things along the way. Sure. Yeah. I think Brian's team does a good job of that. Yeah. Uh, and so knowing Brian, as I do, you know, the, the, the team comes in every, every removal, they're gathering data about the animal, right? Not just the name and address and all that, but they're gathering data about what kind of snake or, or other critter, what size it is, that sort of thing. So, and where it's where it's released and things like that. And so, there's some things to that that are outside the scope of this paper. I know Brian has done a lot of work with uh, getting those snakes released in proper habitat so that the animal has a a good chance of uh, surviving relocation with you know maybe nothing more than a little bit of disgruntled uh, aggravation. Uh, so they they get put into uh, acceptable habitat that can support the animal which I think is important. That, that's kind of outside the scope of this. But but you also took the data, uh, the snake data, and used that as part of this in terms of what snakes people were getting in their yards and, and that sort of thing. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so one part of the data set and why I think um, one element of why this paper was so novel is the sheer numbers of snakes that Brian and Rattlesnake Solutions remove from urban yards in Phoenix. It's, it's sort of a staggering number of snakes. Um, and so in a two-year period, there were over 2,000 snakes removed from the Phoenix area. And to give you a ballpark of the number of snakes, you know, there's been a couple of um, uh, journal articles published about snakes um, by herpetologists that are looking for snakes. So maybe they're road riding or, or using other methods to quantify snakes, right? And so they see a few hundred sure. snakes. 
Um, another data source that uh, researchers and um, social scientists might use to sort of fill in gaps if they don't know about species or ranges is um, community science platforms like iNaturalist, right? Um, and so um, maybe a lot of folks are familiar and they're users of iNaturalist. So we compared the, the removals of um, the rattlesnake solutions. And in a two-year period, there were more snakes removed from rattlesnake solutions. Um, one and a half times more observations came from rattlesnake solutions than the iNaturalist platform over a 10-year period. Holy cow. So, so it's it's just a staggering amount of information that can be gathered um, if if researchers are willing to um, you know partner with the local business community, and so I I think the the one element that makes this paper novel is this partnership right with researchers and um, rattlesnake solutions and and to say that you know a local business has a lot of knowledge. And uh, they can really contribute to the understanding of species in their area. Yes. So you have the snake data. And then you have, you mentioned census data, what you call census blocks, which is digging into, uh, what, are we, what are we pulling out of census data? Um, income? Um, yeah, income of that age. neighborhood. So census block might be a little amorphous to folks um, in their heads. So to put it at a scale, you know, we're, we call these neighborhood at a, at a neighborhood scale. And okay. so for for the neighborhood, you would know the mean income of the households in the in the neighborhood. So you'd have income data, you would have um, education data, and then you would have demographics. And so that'd be average age. Um, ethnicity, and uh, so you you would have that information as well. So when we okay. looked at the the census block data, we found some um, interesting patterns that were related to variables like income and education, um, and even age, um, and and looked at their those relative importance for predicting removals. And we found that more removals came from um, neighborhoods that had higher income and higher education. But in neighborhoods that were had high income, so in affluent neighborhoods with high education, so with degrees, we found fewer snake removals. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it, if you so want to, cool. we could unpack the income part first, maybe. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so there's there's been several um, efforts to look at ecology and biota in cities. And we know, not just from this work, but we know that cities have resources and they're inequitably distributed in urban spaces. Sure. And sometimes we also see this with biota. And probably one of the most well-documented is some research that's been, you know, a decade old now, and that's looking at trees. So trees um, historically have been planted in areas that have high incomes. And so what this hmm. means is decades later, this translates into um, an in 
equity and inequality of shade. And so affluent neighborhoods have shade and cooler temperatures that could also affect the organisms that might be be in those residential spaces. But in places of low income, there's less shade. And in, in certainly in Phoenix, this also translates to um, some environmental injustice. Um, and so these neighborhoods are exposed to higher temperatures. And other ASU researchers have looked at things like hospital visits. Um, more, more hospital visits come from low-income neighborhoods, and these neighborhoods are physically hotter than I more see. affluent areas. So income can be one way that, that um, cities are stratified. And what we see from the, the rattlesnake data is that we, it appears that um, rattlesnakes show this pattern of being in areas with new development, places that have xeriscaped yards, and places that are closer to the desert. Um, and these when you, when you say uh, xeriscaped yards, we're talking about desert-like yards, right? You're not mm-hmm. trying to grow a lawn. You're... you're yeah, more more native vegetation. Cactus. Yep, yeah. or or okay. dry adapted desert adapted species. Yep, so okay. more more succulents, more cacti, um, mm-hmm. more maybe bare ground cover, less grass. Okay. Yeah. In the in the front yards. Yeah. Sometimes people do a whole whole different thing in their backyards than their front yards because HOAs. Right. That's a whole other conversation. Homeowners uh, yeah. associations dictate what you can grow um, in your front yard, but they can't always dictate what what you do in your backyard. Okay, so it's business and it's like a mullet, right? It's business in the front and party <laughs> in the back. Okay, right. Gotcha. So there's there's a little bit of um, latency of of people desiring more grass in their backyards. Again, this is other researchers at ASU have seen um, that that um, people kind of wish they had a little more grass. <laughs> okay, so tie, going back to higher income, higher, and I get kind of get the higher in, income thing. Um, you got to call somebody and you got to pay somebody to come and take something out of your yard. So it costs some yeah. money. Yeah, absolutely. So there's already a bar. Yeah, it, there's a bar. Mm-hmm. It's 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 not frightfully expensive, but there it is an expense, and not everybody mm-hmm. has that. So I, I kind of get that. But I, what I is still the mystery of uh, higher income and higher education equals fewer snake removal. So what what is sure. what does that have to do? What does higher education yeah. do to to drop that. Well, let me let me also go back and say um, to to just recognize that there is already a bar of who can participate in this service, and and yes. that's a limitation of this study, right? So um, we we can't speak to how all people feel about snakes and how all people in the city might respond to having a snake in their space. Um, so there's already going to be a limitation of who has the time and the resources to participate in this service. So we don't want to, you know, just put too much on, on, on some of these patterns um, until right. we're able to drill down a little more specifically and ask clients um, more specific questions about their resources. Um, okay. So the, 
one pattern we see was, yeah, higher income. Um, there's a pattern of more snake removals, but this interaction effect. So in places that have high income and high education, we have fewer snake removals. And, and that was an interesting pattern. And without doing interviews, we can't really ask people why. So does it mean that there wasn't a snake to begin with, right? So that could be why there's no snake removals. Maybe there's no snake there. Or there's a snake and people make various decisions. Maybe they decide to let nature take its course or, you know, let the snake be, or maybe they take matters into their own hands or whatever. In some of the the literature, there's um, some patterns with education um, and, and, and how people feel about snakes. Um, snakes are, are not very liked um, when we have communities that um, so so perhaps education is um, those folks are able to recognize that there's some benefit to snakes. There's some ecological importance to snakes, maybe, right? Maybe. But but again, we don't know because for a human wildlife interaction, there has to be a snake there and there has to be a decision. Right. Interesting. You also briefly touched on uh, other on other survey material. And then maybe this ties into attitudes about snakes. And I want, I want to bring this up. This is the what's called the Phoenix Social Survey, which uh, I, I don't know a lot about it, but it seems like part of the social survey concerns itself with uh, ecology or, or um, wildlife in general. And so folks, when they take the survey, they're, they're answering lots of different questions, but they're also answering some questions about their attitudes towards wildlife. You want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. Yeah. So the Phoenix Area Social Survey, um, Kelly Larson, co-author on this um, paper, um, has been running that um, survey um, with collaborators for many years now. So this is a long-term social survey that's deployed about every five years. And the the other team of collaborators um, is part of, sorry, I'm going to give you an acronym, CAP-LTER, and that stands for the Central Phoenix, Central Arizona Phoenix Long-Term Ecological Research Group. And these LTER networks are funded by the National Science Foundation, and they study ecology over decades. And there's several different research groups um, that are in North America. There's two in Antarctica. um, And there's a couple that are focused on urban spaces. And so the Central Arizona Phoenix LTER is focused on both people and biota in in Maricopa County. So the the beginning of that social survey is is tied to this long-term, this effort to collect long-term data. Okay, so the neighborhoods were chosen decades ago, and there's 12 neighborhoods. And they're stratified across Phoenix. And so they're in places that have a higher degree of urbanization and places that are closer to maybe desert open space and have lower density housing. Um, They also are stratified across um, demographic variables. And so these neighborhoods are mailed a survey, um, like I said, about every five years. 
And then there's, there's incentives. And again, this is part of social science is, you know, I'd like to compensate, compensate you for your time. So if you fill out our survey, we'll give you, you know, an Amazon gift card or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, people will fill out the survey and it's long. It's a booklet. It's many pages. Oh, wow. um, but, but this survey is so rich. It's, it's, um, researchers have been able to use this to look at things like we had a big economic downturn in 2008 and 2009 in Phoenix and across the U.S., right? So we were right. able to look at how yards were managed differently or how biota responded or were people happy about um, where they were living. And so the questions that there's many questions, and we just drilled down to a few questions um, that were related to people's ecological worldview. And so we asked them questions about, do they put out water for birds or bird houses? Um, do they pay attention to the different animals that might be in their yard? Do they manage their yard by planting native vegetation that might attract pollinators? And so we have a suite of questions that can put people on sort of the scale of having pro-ecological worldviews. And we found a pattern of um, neighborhoods that have these pro-ecological worldviews. So they are participating in some of this environmental stewardship, if you will. Um, there's also more snakes being removed from those areas. So that's huh. kind of an, an interesting pattern. And, um, and if I back this up just a little bit, this this survey, you are able to use almost 500 survey responses. So you're not just pulling data from a couple dozen people. 500 responses is pretty dang high. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. And but that that takes a lot of incentives and repeated right. asking, please return your survey. But that's, um, that's uh, for those people gathering this data, that's got to be that has to be very a very happy thing, right? I mean, to get that kind of response, I mean, I know you have to bribe people, but still that's a lot of data right there. It absolutely is. Yeah. So, and it's sorry. really important to look at how how people's behaviors change over time. So, like I said, this sur social survey was deployed, um, you know, three decades ago. And, and so you can see how responses change over time. Now, tying that, those neighborhoods to the snake removals, the people that filled out like those 400, 900, I'm sorry, 490 some respondents of the social survey, we do not know if they've ever dealt with rattlesnake solutions. And so, again, we, we know the location of the survey respondents and we know the location of the snake. And so we made a buffer, and I'm forgetting the, how, how big this buffer was. I want to say like 400 meters. Anyways, okay. so we, have, we buffered the survey respondents and their, the data that's tied there, and then looked at how many snake removals were in that proximity. So that was a way to say, well, if a snake was removed from a certain neighborhood, you know, a few houses down, a few hundred meters, means that it's, it's likely to be in that neighborhood. It could be within walking distance of that house. But again, it's, it's trying very hard to, to overlap 
biological data with social data, and it's it's hard to do. But so that's a caveat of that, and and so we believe that the responses are uh, representative of that neighborhood, and then we can pair that with the snakes that are, are removed from that area. So it doesn't give you hard data, but you can you can see trends, mm-hmm. right? So if the neighborhoods. Uh, general mm-hmm. uh, ecological, I don't know what you call that, their, their ecological friendliness scale is, let's say it's a, a four, as opposed to a neighborhood five miles away, which has an ecological friendliness scale of two. Uh, so you can, you can kind of say, well, this neighborhood, for whatever reason, whether it's income or education or some other factor, maybe they live right next to a wildlife corridor or something, but whatever it is, this, these things are different. And so, and then you, you plot back animal removals or snake removals. You plot it back to that to see what the trends are. And so I think what you're telling me then is that the areas that are more higher on the ec- ecological friendliness scale have more snake removals. Right. And trend. it's a little, yeah. And so some of this is a little bit nuanced and, and um, words can be really important, right? So yes. how we talk about this can be important. So I wouldn't say ecological friendliness, um, but but they have a worldview of maybe they feel responsible for nature, um, okay, and and feel like they have a little bit more of a role. That could be very different than some communities who may feel more interdependent of nature, and and maybe in those communities they feel like it's more important to let let nature take its course or let animals be. Um, don't engage. Don't insert yourself um, because you're not in control of nature. So th- that can be a very different sort of community. Um, I'm also beginning to understand that being a herpetologist might be easier in some ways than being a social scientist. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. But you've probably been in the field with some people that like you see a snake or a toad and you're like, grab it. Let's get it. Let's hold it. Let's let's look at it. And some other people might be like, you know, that's that could be stressful to the animal. Why don't we appreciate it and watch its behavior and photograph it right here? you know, like people have have, have different views. Yes. Um, and we've talked about that several times on this show. So that's appropriate. Uh, one of the things that came out of this day, one of the questions they asked these people is whether they own a dog or cat. And it seems what I, what I looked at uh, that if you own a dog, you're less likely to call for a rattlesnake removal, um, which, which kind of mystified me a little bit. Because I thought, well, if you own a dog, you, you you would think, well, I don't want my dog to get bit by a rattlesnake, so I, I'm going to call. Or, or so I, I'm just curious as to why why you think or why uh, what's the supposition is for why dog owners call less. Sure, yeah, and I might say I don't know on this one. Okay, <laughs> so so looking like our social scientist was. Um, really interested in putting, like looking at this question specifically. Yeah, because there's a hypothesis you could test. So maybe if somebody has a dog, yeah, they might be more fearful that their dog would be injured by a, a harmful snake or a venomous snake, right? And so that was the prediction we had and we found the opposite. And and so I, I don't know. Does, does it mean that snakes avoid yards with dogs? I don't know. Does uh-huh. it, right? So it could be, 
there's, there's something about the behavior of the snake or there's something about the behavior of the people. And, and we're not really sure. <laughs> okay. But, but, you know, drilling down into this, again, this social survey that is deployed to folks from rattle that are using rattlesnake solutions. Um, and I'll say we have some preliminary data from those surveys that, that people did and have answered already. And some of the comments are pretty interesting. And it seems that people are um, worried about the risk of having a harmful snake in, in their space. And there were definitely some respondents, and this is that preliminary data from the clients again. People are saying things like, I have small children, ah. um, and I'm, I'm worried about my kids um, maybe getting bit by a snake, right? So... I guess some of that might be stay tuned because we might be able to unpack that a little bit more. Okay. Um, and I think in the paper we do reference um, biophilia. And, and so maybe just really feeling strongly like animals have rights or so, so maybe people that own pets have a certain view of, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I can't answer that one really good. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to say snake friendly. <laughs> I don't know what I'm still wrapping my head around ecological mm -hmm. worldview. Um, but uh, that that also leads, you know, of course, you have a dog. Uh, that's one thing. But to have kids is another thing. And kids like to play outside. So you obviously want to protect your kids. But it's maybe perhaps people who are outside with their kids more in the yard are going to see more wildlife. Maybe that has an effect on who calls for snake removal sure. as well? Yeah, yeah. And the census data, we looked at age. And, and so you could think of as maybe age might be a proxy for people having young kids at home versus not. Um, and we we did find a relationship with age, but it, it wasn't near as strong as like income or education. Okay. Um, but possibly, you know, we do talk a little bit about that in, in the paper that maybe we don't see, um, older, uh, we don't see snakes coming from neighborhoods that have older age residents. And so sure, it could be these folks don't spend a lot of time outside and maybe younger folks that have families are, are outside. So maybe they do recognize if they even have a snake, um, okay. because they're in those spaces. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, you're also, you look at income and you look at age and education, but you're also looking at the ethnic makeup of neighborhoods. And can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think there was some difference, uh, also as, when, with regards to the, you know, the overall ethnic makeup of a neighborhood, you know, this, this neighborhood is mostly, white or Hispanic or black or something like that. Is there some correlations going on with that as well in terms of sure. who, who makes calls for snake removals? Yeah, a, a little bit. And again, that's at the census level. Um, uh -huh. And we'd like to unpack that a little bit more. Um, we found that basically there was no relationship to any ethnicity except for in um, neighborhoods where residents um, self-identified as um, Hispanic and Latinx. Um, okay. We found more removals of non-venomous snakes. Um, and, and that's still paired in high-income areas. 
And we, we still found a very similar relationship in, um, in neighborhoods with high income and uh, where the residents identified as Hispanic or Latinx, fewer snakes were removed. And so that followed similar patterns. But we didn't find patterns with percentage of residents that identified as white. Um, so it's okay. a, a little more subtle. But I'd like to work with some of our um, uh, Hispanic and Latinx scholars to investigate um, that community a little bit more. Okay. That seems like a very interesting, I don't want to call it a, an anomaly, but the fact that you have higher numbers when it comes to non-venomous snakes, that seems rather interesting, an interesting avenue to explore. And perhaps that's a cultural thing. Uh, perhaps it's a, a an economic thing. But also, I think perhaps also as you're, you know, I'm going to jump a little, ahead a little bit, but your study also showed that, you know, your rattlesnakes are mostly found uh, in neighborhoods that are, you know, on the edge of Phoenix or next to air, you know, wil- not wilderness areas, but, you know, set aside areas for nature. But venomous snakes seem to penetrate into older established neighborhoods that are further away from preserves uh, for whatever reason. Maybe they're a better adapted. Uh, maybe a king snake or a gopher snake is better adapted at hanging out in some older, more established neighborhood than a rattlesnake would. Uh, so maybe that has something to do with it as well. Uh, because yeah, those animals and, might be more prevalent in certain neighborhoods. But. Sure, exactly. Yeah, there could be um, a difference due to space and where people live in the city. And rattlesnakes are found more on the periphery of the city, closer to um, open spaces. And non-venomous, or we call them harmless, and I'll recognize that because herpetologists listen to this <laughs> podcast, we yes. colubrid snakes can have venom, rear-fanged, yes. But in our paper, we, we call them harmless, non-venomous snakes. Yes. Um, okay, so... Or as we like to, like to say, medically insignificant, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Or you have to be really small for them to bite you, whatever. Um, so things like Sonoran gopher snake and California king snake, they, they showed similar patterns, but spatially there's some different hotspots within the city of where those snakes were being removed. And um, the gopher snakes and king snakes do look like they're, they're able to penetrate that urban matrix maybe a little better. And yeah. um, we, we know from their natural history, these are very different animals as well, right? So they're active foragers versus sit and wait. Um, gopher snakes and king snakes are really great at climbing. They can climb trees and climb walls. So maybe right. the city and the permeability um, of the city is a little bit different um, yeah. to those types of snakes compared to things like rattlesnakes. But but both both of those groups of snakes, um, the number of removals was associated with more people, right? Because that's it's a human wildlife interaction. So you still have to have people in the mix, right? For, for that, right. yeah. So more eyeballs, but yeah. But there's some spatial differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, for those folks who have never been to Phoenix, uh, perhaps you live in a large eastern metropolitan area. Phoenix is. It's a big city, has four point something million people, I think, and uh, but it uh, it has some set aside land, right? It has mountains, uh, areas that are hard to develop, so they're set aside as natural areas or, or what would you call them, commons or, or uh, 
I'm not quite yeah, sure what they were. Yeah, we call them desert, desert preserves or desert mountain, preserves, mountain preserves, right. preserves so, yeah. So we have so, some pretty big parks. Yeah, and so in the and I've been to Phoenix a few times. So right in the middle of the city, there's a big mountain sticking up, and you can park your car somewhere and go hiking up in the mountains there, and and maybe see a rattlesnake. So it's a little different from cities where you start with a small village on the side of a river that a hundred years later has a hundred million people, and there's you know the only green space is like you know New York, like Central Park or something. So it's it's a little different. Uh, situation you have all these dynamic things that can happen based on where these you know these mountains are these these uh nature parks are so uh it, that adds a bunch of uh complications to what you're trying to study as well right sure yeah and we we did include that um there and I will mention that um Brian um with Rattlesnake Solutions, did collaborate with another researcher, and they were looking at just the ecological factors that would predict um, where snakes were being removed. And they, and yes, found the same pattern, that snake removals happen in residents that are closer to these urban parks. And so you can think of these urban spaces as habitat, and they do punctuate the city. So exactly right, for people that don't know Phoenix, um, we do have... um, um, Salt River and the Verde River that come into the, uh-huh. the valleys. This is why we call it the valley um, because of these rivers. Um, but then it is punctuated by these buttes and these mountains and these are, are open spaces. And so this possibly could be habitat um, for snakes. And so um, residents that live right on the edge of these open spaces might be living in close proximity of, of snake habitat. Um, okay. And if, if you look at the, the list of snake species that are removed, um, the, the snake diversity is pretty amazing, right, in Phoenix. Um, there's Brian always likes to, I'll use his line, he likes to say, there's more species of rattlesnakes in Phoenix than most states have in their entire area. Right. So, and, and some are very unique. Now, some are, are very widespread, like Western diamondback. And then we have Southwestern speckled rattlesnake, which is, is very specialized and more localized to the Sonoran desert. So we have some unique species as well. Yeah. And I, um, I'll post a link to this paper because it's, it's very, it's got some very interesting charts and graphs in it as well. One of the things that, that struck me when we're talking about, um, one of the charts talks about it breaks down what snakes were relocated and what snakes were observed in iNaturalist, right? So, you know, the Western Diamondback rattlesnake is the that that's the snake most removed. It's an incredible, incredible number of those snakes. Uh, I think almost sixteen hundred snakes. So almost seventy percent, sixty eight percent of all s- snakes relocated were Western Diamondback rattlesnakes, mm-hmm. Crotalus atrox. Uh, so you have uh, in the study there was sixteen, almost sixteen hundred atrox uh, involved, but uh, corresponding to iNaturalist records, only had four hundred. So, like you said, you have basically four times, or, or what is that? I can't do the math here. Four times as many relocated, as it, but uh, the numbers for other rattlesnakes are kind of reversed. You see more speckled rattlesnakes found in iNaturalist and Mojaves and tigers. Uh, and blacktail rattlesnakes. The numbers for those are the numbers of those encountered in iNaturalist is higher than the numbers that are relocated as part of the snake removal process. But I, I think perhaps those those snakes 
uh, are kind of specialists in their habitat where, you know, Atrax tend to be more of a generalist. They're able to occupy uh, within reason, uh, uh, you know, many more different spaces uh, mm-hmm. around and in the city, right? Sure. Um, I, I think one take-home point for comparing the removal data set to iNaturalist is that even within iNaturalist, of all of those snakes, if you look at the percentage, it's 26% of all observations were Western Diamondback. And we're talking about 68%. But it's still the number one. It's still the most common snake observed and logged in that iNaturalist platform. So I think that's an important point because it means that people interact with um, the common species, species that are common to their spaces. Um, and, I, and I will say within urban ecology, we see that with other taxa as well. For example, birds. Um, a lot of people are interacting with the most common birds in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think that the rattlesnake Western Diamondback sort of shows that similar pattern. Um, even the second most abundant in iNaturalist is the second most numerous snakes being removed. That's the Sonoran gopher snake. Yeah. But yeah, as you get down and you look at things that are more specialized, um, I'm sure folks are, uh, within the iNaturalist platform, um, maybe seeking and, and wanting to have an observation of the speckled rattlesnakes. Um, and so we see that iNaturalist, that's like 8% versus only 3%. Being uh, removed. Well, that's a good point yeah. because, you know, yeah. folks that might make an iNaturalist observation are interested in the charismatic species. So they, they that may bump that number up a little bit, right? It's like uh, Aatrox and uh, gopher snakes are sort of like the pigeons and squirrels. But if a white <laughs> rhino showed up in my neighborhood, everybody would be in my backyard taking pictures of right. it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's something that my collaborators and I are sort of interested in is, is looking at organisms and wildlife in the city. Like if we look at organisms through the lens of an ecologist, we're usually interested in, is it endemic or native or is it exotic? Is it non-native? Like what role does it play in the ecosystem? But for people that are living in the urban space, it just might be Hey, there's a, there's a piece of nature right here, and um, it's drinking from water, and I can watch that behavior. Or I'm at a duck pond, and I think watching mallards is really interesting. So sometimes what people or the public or residents might get a lot of reward um, or interest or fascination by is is probably still very valid and important for um, for some folks. Mm-hmm. Um, if we, if we look through that lens, right. Yeah. And the, yeah. and the herpetologist lens or the ecologist lens might be ranking species, um, based on, oh, well that's a, that's a common species or, or what have right. you. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens. That's, I guess that's human nature. And so the, all of this, uh, I want to touch on another sir or the, uh, the survey that came through rattlesnake solutions. But first I want to, I would talk about all this data it not only informs people who ha- it informs people who have to make decisions about urban wildlife how to conserve it how to where to put a new subdivision what uh what about uh common areas and buffer zones and things like that so do you see this paper as sort of informing those decisions because it, it's not, it's not enough to understand 
what the community thinks, but it's also you have to think about looking forward to what what you can do to keep that what because obviously the community wants their natural spaces. They may want their interactions with rattlesnakes, just not in their backyard. So you the the powers that be have to make decisions to inform uh, you know future development or future plans for the city. Yeah, exactly right. And I think some of the implications here is that um, for for conservation um, in cities, it's managing human-wildlife interactions. And that requires an understanding of human perceptions and, and actions. And that can shape ecological outcomes for species. And, and so it's important to understand how human behavior might have these consequences. Um, so for to go back to the common thing, to, um, people that are interacting with common species, like for um, some humans view birds as, because we've done other work the team has on on bird communities, and residents tend to favor, or they, they like birds that are colorful, um, mm-hmm. have a pleasant song, don't appear to be messy. And so they might be supportive of conservation actions in general that would support birds, for example. But, but reptiles sometimes <laughs> can be viewed as a threat or a nuisance or fearful, right? And so there can be negative outcomes for wildlife because of that. Um, but, but sometimes there's positive. So there are, there's papers that have looked at reptiles being removed from roadways or maybe building structures for reptiles to be able to cross safely. And is the community supportive of that? And so understanding perceptions of people might be important for, for being able to pair some conservation action with that. Like, let's have a, a roadway so our turtles can, can cross safely during migration um, or salamanders. And nobody and argues with turtles. Everybody wants the <laughs> turtles to get across the road. It's funny. Right. You know, that's a, a, an entirely different subject right there because everybody yes, is pro-turtle yes. that, that I know of, unless you're really, unless you've got some real problems. But this also brings a point, you're talking about the birds and, you know, so you manage, you have to manage for wildlife and management for birds is a big deal. But it also strikes me that birds are often an umbrella species for for snakes. I mean, like, you know, look, look at uh Ducks Unlimited and waterfowl conservation and, you know, uh, maintaining that habitat and so many other species benefit from that. So perhaps uh, perhaps the birds can help the uh, rattlesnakes along out in Phoenix as well. You <laughs> sure. go to put a neighborhood, you don't put it right next to the um, the mountain park. You put it, you know, you put a buffer zone there, right? A 100-yard buffer zone or something to uh, benefit the birds, but also maybe the rattlesnakes benefit from that as well. Right. Or... Or I might I might pull in some of my other research interests, and that's studying riparian areas, and and so ah. riparian areas are these floodplain habitats that are adjacent to streams, and in the arid southwest, um, streams and freshwater systems are like two percent of the total land area, right? But they support trees, and and it's really the only treed habitat in um, arid uh, southwest is supported by these hydrologic flows. And they're incredibly diverse areas. 
and they support a lot of reptiles and amphibians in these right. areas. So um, things like the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, um, National Wildlife Refuges, um, uh, actions that are um, focused on um, maintaining flow in streams. It's good for the vegetation. It's good for the biodiversity. And that does include reptiles. Right, right. That's an that's an that's not your side work, but that's a something else you've been involved in. And I, I suppose where you're at in Phoenix, it's it's even more complex because a, a riparian area also has to contain a floodplain area, right? I mean, for those times when you get three days of rain and you know the the river is is no longer a river; it's now this wide stream of running water and. Uh, so you have to manage that as well. And so I imagine there, there, there's probably some uh, difficulties with that as well. Sure. Yeah. Water um, is uh, always an interesting topic in the arid Southwest. And in Arizona, we have we have streams that are permanent water. So they flow all the time. Um, and they're able to, to really manage these high flow pulses. Um, you can have scouring floods, and those scouring floods are pretty important for maintaining um, vegetation like cottonwood trees and willows. And then we have a whole network of streams that only flow during a precipitation event or runoff. Um, and these intermittent streams, there's, there's whole groups of researchers that are focused on the importance of these intermittent streams. Um, and they also support a lot of biodiversity in these areas. But um, streams in, in the West, streams all over the planet, have been highly modified, right? So we have impoundments and we have dams and we have diversions because we use water for, for humans. Um, and in, in uh, the view of, of climate change, um, in the arid Southwest, I mean, we're all going through some major extreme droughts right now. We've right. had basically two years of hardly any monsoon moisture and precipitation. So um, over time, our streams are going to have less water, either because humans are going to manage for it um, or uh, there's going to be less inputs into those streams. And so some, some pretty important decisions are going to be made. Um, for allocating uh, water in the West. Yeah, uh, and uh, there are no easy answers for that, that's for There's sure. There's no easy answers, yeah. Huh. Um, the last thing really I want to touch base on is, I think this um, this goes back to perhaps the survey that Rattlesnake Solutions is doing, where they try to do a, a survey, the survey, you know, over the phone or you pay for it and then you go to the survey that takes you to ASU and that it sort of gauges the attitudes of yeah. the participants to snakes, right? So you have, um, why did you, you know, why did you call us? Uh, why did you have the snake removed? And then you break it down into, you know, the reason the snake is a threat, the snake is, it doesn't belong here. So there's some interesting responses I think to that survey, and, and I realize this, you know, you're dealing with a smaller subset right now. You don't have a, a big data set to work from, but some of the responses I think are pretty interesting. Would you, you care to talk about that a little bit? Sure, sure, yeah. And I might, I might couple that with sort of like this bigger topic of um, perception of risk, and we we try to get at um, how people perceived snakes in terms of risk. 
Um, and so we, um, be, because human perceptions of, of snakes, sometimes it doesn't always fit the actual risk. So there's perception and then there's risk. And so we wanted to know, did people's perception of risk match the number of snakes that were being removed from their neighborhoods? Ah. So we use that Phoenix area social survey and we use those 12 study neighborhoods because in that social survey, there's a question that says, um, how much of a problem are snakes in your neighborhood or something like that? I forget mm -hmm. the verbatim wording, but you know, people have a scale and a scale of one to five, how problematic are snakes in your neighborhood? And so there were some neighborhoods, if we look at the average of that ranking, there were some neighborhoods that said that snakes were a big problem. And then there were other neighborhoods that are like, nah, snakes are no problem at all. When we paired that with the number of snakes that were removed from rattlesnake solutions, Maybe you can already guess, no relationship. So, huh. so maybe people aren't very good at um, measuring biodiversity or um, ha having a good sense of, of the actual risk. And, and our, our work isn't the only one to have, have shown that. You know, there's been other studies looking at bees or maybe mosquitoes in neighborhoods and are they a problem? And so I might mention Jeff Brown's work because this is peripherally. You can decide if you want to take this out later. But Jeff Brown, co-author on this paper, is looking at um, mosquitoes that have been removed by um, county officials. Uh -huh. And on the Phoenix Area Social Survey, there's a question about how problematic are mosquitoes. And during the economic downturn in 2008-9, there were a lot of homes that people didn't live in, right? So we had these bank-owned foreclosed homes right. and they had a pool in the backyard that people oh weren't maintaining. And so the perceived risk of mosquitoes was very high. But people would call the county and they'd say, okay, here's some pupfish or, you know, mosquito fish and they put it in the pool. And when they measured the mosquitoes, there was really not a problem of mosquitoes in their neighborhood because they've been taken care of. But people viewing an unkept pool made them perceive that there was a problem ah. with mosquitoes in their neighborhood. And and so okay. I don't, I don't want to like ruin the punchline of Jeff Brown's work that he's he's looking at, but he's looking at pairing perceived risk and and mosquito numbers in in residential areas, right? So stay tuned because that could be some really cool wow. work. But yeah. point is humans might not be very they might not be always the best judge of actual risk. Uh -huh. And so when we looked at, you know, the same question, how, how much are snakes a problem in your neighborhood? We did not find a statistical difference. And, and about half of these neighborhoods didn't even have snakes that were removed. Um, I will say that the, the neighborhood that felt the strongest about snakes being a problem actually did have the most snakes removed, but that's one data point, right? Yeah. Um, okay. But there were other places where actually a lot of snakes were removed around South Mountain, um, but there, the, the responses there were like, nah, snakes aren't a big problem here. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that, is a, uh, that point was part of a, a figure in the paper that, you know, it's like, well, these folks here are like, eh, and these folks over here are like, whoa, you know, they're like, big problem. And over here, like, yeah, so what? So it's very interesting yeah. and it, it's very similar area. You know, it's a neighborhood near a, a natural area. 
And, and mm-hmm. yet the two neighborhoods had completely different or significantly different, I should say, uh, attitudes. Right. So Yeah. So it's it's someone consistent with some other work, like how people are able to accurately assess things like biodiversity. Um, m- maybe not, not so much. Um, well, there is but, a question in, on here. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go Finish. ahead. Well, there is a question on here, I think, that points to maybe some other things going on. And the question is, when is it okay to kill snakes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is from the clients. Yeah. yeah. So, so getting to some of those that preliminary um, data, the the pilot data, if you will, um, we were looking at the motivations for why snakes were removed, and so we asked questions like, "Are you scared of snakes? Was the snake dangerous? Things like that." And for the most part, people were not scared of snakes. People found that snakes were interesting. Um, like they weren't boring, they were somewhat interesting, but, uh, in terms of fearful, it was like, I don't know, evenly split. So I didn't think fear was a big motivation, Mm -hmm. but a big motivation was, uh, most people said the snake was dangerous or harmful. And that's why we wanted the snake removed. And that probably is true in so much that, you know, 70% of the removals from rattlesnake solutions is of rattlesnakes. Right. But they do try to talk to clients and say, it's a black and white snake. It's climbing. You know, it's probably harmless. Maybe you don't need us. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I think it's interesting that even though people didn't want rattlesnakes in their yard, for the most part, according to the, the survey data, they really didn't want the rattlesnake killed. People didn't seek revenge on the rattlesnake for being in their yard. They just said, well, it really can't live here. It's got to go somewhere else. And and survey-wise, they're like, yeah, it should live over there. And I'm happy with it living over there. And I'm actually kind of interested in it living over there, just not, you know, the NIMBY thing, right? Not in my backyard. Right, yeah. Uh, Which I, you know, that seems to me that that seems rather hopeful. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, I was I was happy to see that. <laughs> Most people said it is not okay to kill a snake, especially if it's in the desert preserve. And I think even more than half uh, people said it's not even okay to kill a snake if it's on my own property. That's correct, um, yeah. And, and, and then it sort of escalates. So we, we give people these different scenarios, like what if somebody was bit? Then is it okay to kill a snake? Um, and, and I think still just as many said no as yes, um, for that. It was, uh, the revenge factor was not significant. I don't think people, you know, again, the idea that the snake should be punished for, for something, uh, doesn't seem to be prevalent. I I just found that, I found it fascinating and I found it very hopeful. Sure. Yeah. And it could, it could sort of go along with that trend we saw in these uh, pro-ecological worldviews. So maybe these are neighborhoods where people are are feeding wildlife and they're planting vegetation because they're interested in nature and they think snakes are interesting, but yeah, they just don't want them in their garage. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> likes and dislikes, right? Uh, I find snakes very boring. Zero percent. Yeah. Somewhat boring. Three <laughs> percent. And then somewhat fascinating is a third and very fascinating is Almost forty percent. So that that makes me feel good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I feel like yeah. all these nature shows and uh, kids grew up with, uh, you know, watching Crocodile Hunter and all that kind of stuff. I think maybe some of that stuff's rubbed off on people's perceptions of 
of wildlife. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that thing can uh, put a put a real hurt on you, but uh, still kind of cool. So. Yeah, no, it's interesting to think of perceptions, and and so future work is. Um, these questions that the clients have, we're asking the exact same questions on the, the new Phoenix area social survey that just got deployed this summer. And so we can, we can think of that Phoenix area social survey as maybe the general public. And so then we can ask the folks that engage with rattlesnake solutions and pay for this service um, compared to the average urban resident, do they are they less fearful of snakes? Are they less likely to think that snakes should be killed? Are they more likely to engage in um, more worldviews of of maybe thinking snakes are important in nature? Ah, so you 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 all are already considering your future collaborations? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> So you you got an education for some with some social science material, and the social scientists got an uh, uh, an education on matters herpetological, and you guys will move forward together. Yeah, it's been a, a fun team, and so we're we're interested in other things like um, who rescues birds. We have a paper coming out soon, um, looking at a wildlife rehabber in Phoenix, and same thing. Who are the rescuers? Who are you know who's bringing in birds to okay. a rehab facility? Okay, yeah. Who who takes them in? Oh, very yeah. interesting. Yeah. And is it is it what's the out? You know, the it begs the question: What's the outcome for the animal? Is it good or is it bad? And when the bulk of animals are are baby birds, maybe that means that people should be a little more hands off. Maybe it would be better if people left baby birds alone. You know, we don't know. We didn't measure the outcome to wildlife. But you can see how human-wildlife interactions and people making a decision can affect the outcome for wildlife. And maybe it's it's good to not engage. Um, yeah. But maybe, mm. for example, snakes, It would we would really like to be able to look at following a set of, of urban snakes um, and snakes that get removed. So do the, ah. do the urban snakes do okay or do they just get run over? Um, uh. and, and sort of pairing that to look at the outcomes, right? That, that would be another cool future study. As an urban snake observer, I have garter snakes in my yard. Uh, I find that very nice. interesting. So I look forward to hearing more about that at some point. Well, I want to thank you for talking about this paper. I think it's it's very interesting, sort of a new territory uh, that we're moving into. Uh, and you you have other research avenues that you're pursuing. Uh, it sounds like the uh, the bird the bird thing, and uh, you also you also teach. And uh, what what else are you up to? So. Um... I guess on, on our campus, Polytechnic campus at ASU, sort of some big news is um, we have uh, dug some burrows for burrowing owls, and oh, cool. we've just introduced burrowing owls to the Polytechnic campus, and we're also partnering with some other groups like Mayo Clinic and, and the West Campus at ASU, and so right now we have owls on campus, and that's, that's a awesome. lot of fun, and we're just going to cross our fingers because... You know, burrowing owls, they're the only owl species that nest in the ground. Right. And um, in the urban area within Phoenix, they're displaced for um, uh, development. Right. Um, and they're, they're protected, and so the developer has to call and have the, um, the owls uh, moved. And so we're working with a nonprofit 
um, that houses these owls and they're, they're constantly looking for new urban habitats to place owls. And we're hoping that we can use our classes. So these are students in applied biological sciences and our undergraduate classes um, and our master's level program um, to be able to do some investigations to um, look at factors that could um, uh, influence or, or help promote the establishment of these urban owl okay. colonies. And you have a pretty good idea what their requirements are. They need a certain soil type, that kind of thing. And, and you know, they need yeah. food because um, yeah, yeah, yeah. the mm-hmm. owls have to have to hunt and they're looking for invertebrates. And so um, our classes that focus on more native plants and uh, restoration, they're interested in um, uh, promoting different native plant species around these sites and seeing if they can increase the number of arthropods and insects um, right now, it's kind of interesting. The owls, you can you can see they'll they'll bring food items to the burrow, mm-hmm. and they have been able to find things like pocket mice, which are native rodents in the area, and so okay. that's good. And they're also picking some uh, Mediterranean house geckos. Ah. Um, and so <laughs> this is, you know, it's an introduced um, urban gecko, yeah. um, pretty common in cities. Fair and game. we've seen, a, yeah, we've seen a few of these um, as, as prey items uh, that the burrowing owls are choosing. So I'm hoping maybe my, my herpetology class in the fall might be able to do a project looking at diets of these urban burrowing uh, owls. Yeah, we'll get the pellets, right? Yeah. Do they, yeah. do they, uh, the pellets are outside the burrow, I, I assume. They deposit them somewhere else. Yeah, we can see them at the entrance. Yeah. If if they if they deposit them down in the burrow, we can't get them. <laughs> so who knows? Um, well, I want to. Yeah, I want to tell you, no, I, I was in Paraguay earlier this year, and uh, the last day we were in the capital, Asuncion, and uh, we were kind of herping this around this park, looking for frogs and stuff. And uh, uh, I, I saw some burrowing owls on the edge of a soccer field. And uh, I got to spend a little time watching them, you know, hunt and and uh, use the uh, the fences and other high points to watch for wildlife and stuff. And it was kind of cool, and it struck me. Well, I'm in the middle of a, a big city, and uh, this is uh, know, a fair sized park, but uh, with some green space, but a lot of open fields and stuff. And yet, these owls seem to be making uh, making a home here. And there's lots of people walking and jogging by, and the owls are just kind of turning their heads and watching the people jog by and no big deal. And I thought, wow. So when you're talking about uh, getting them established on campus, I'm like, that, that's a, that's probably going to work. That's going to be a good deal. Yeah, we, we hope so. We hope the owls like their home. Um, it's pretty tricky because they might decide, nah, and they leave. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, you can't, that's, that's the thing with wildlife. You can't always predict, but, but, but generally um, the smaller owls are pretty tolerant of, of humans. Um, they can fly away pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, their predators are, are things like hawks and, you know, other raptors would right. get them. Probably feral cats would get them. Um, but if they have, like you mentioned grass, at soccer field, um, owls in Phoenix do really well in agriculture settings. So there's some irrigated okay. crop and the owls will be not in the crop field, but just like you kind of saw it sort of on the side, maybe on a ditch bank or near a, a fence row. And that's where they have their nest and their burrows. But then they go and forage in these areas that are very mesic or wet 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that water and the, and the vegetation and they're eating a lot of insects. So okay. I think there could be some interesting partnerships with looking at places that have, you know, maybe soccer pitches or um, agriculture, um, ag producers, um, see uh-huh. if they might be interested in having some owls on there. Yeah. On or on the edge property. of some of your uh, occasional streams, right? With the yeah, there's there's a quite the network of canal systems in uh-huh. uh, Phoenix, and uh, burrowing owls um, will utilize a lot of those. Oh, do they? Okay, too. all right, okay, very good. And you teach a herpetology class. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so in the in the fall, I teach applied herpetology, which is just a, a fantastic um, job, and we do field trips with Arizona Game and Fish and the Forest Service. So we we really try to engage students with um, uh, professionals in the field, so that they have an understanding what they can do with their degree. Um, Very good. And so we do really great field trips, looking at Chiricahua leopard frog um, introductions and. Um, garter snake work uh, and uh, and and some urban um, ecology as well. And then in the spring, I teach applied ornithology. So oh wow! Um, and and so I, I feel like it's the best of of both worlds. There's there's not many like people that tend to be herpers and birders. Like it's a crowd that I feel doesn't always mix. <laughs> well, it's hard to <laughs> so look up and down. Trips, you know? It it is, and and I don't mind getting up early, right? Because that's okay. a birding thing. And yeah. a lot of times, herpetologists are like, "Nah, I want to sleep in and go out at night." <laughs> um, and yeah. yeah, I like I like it all. Yeah. Well, you're all over the place there at ASU then, with what you're doing. Yeah. So when I was brought on to ASU, it was sort of interesting. They the job announcement, right? It, we everybody applies for a job they see and. Um, this um, particular announcement was looking for faculty that had expertise in ornithology or herpetology or restoration ecology or riparian ecology. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, Checking off uh, all the boxes. I, I was able to check all those boxes, which yeah. was lucky for me. And uh, as, a, as a junior faculty in our program, um, b- building my research and uh, mentoring students, sometimes I had students that would come to me and they ended up doing maybe a small mammal project. So I'm like, okay, sure. We can, yeah, we can trap rodents. We can do that too. So sometimes I feel like a, a little bit of Jill of all trades in, yeah. in the program, but you know, ma- master of none. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Yeah. Very good. Uh, well, and, and uh, I know you're probably hoping to get a greater degree of normalcy this fall, maybe uh, some more students back in the lecture Abs- hall. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's uh, so so fun to engage with students in a classroom and field setting. Um, we were able to do some day field trips um, during, you know, COVID uh, protocols. Um, we we could stay separated in the field and and mask up and keep safe. Uh-huh. Uh, and so so we did some road riding. We did some some day trips um, to look for garter snakes and. Um, lizards. Uh, and, and so that was really great to, that we could keep those field trips. Um, and, and most of our lectures ended up being remote. And so we're all kind of used to the zoom world as it were, but, um, for sure, getting, getting, um, back in the classroom and, uh, just being able to, to gauge students' interest and questions, um, is, is really, I think what a lot of professors are probably missing. Yeah. Um, and looking forward to. Very good. 
Well, I want to thank you again for coming on to the show and uh, helping me wrap my brain around uh, around this the study. Um, I, I I found it interesting, but it was also kind of hard for me to wrap my head around. So I appreciate your your help with that. So, and uh, I'm sure my uh, my listeners are. Uh, they they like uh, this sort of thing too. That it's uh, it's complicated, but it's terribly interesting, and and everybody knows at a base level what it's like to help somebody out who's got a snake in their in their backyard or or uh, something along those lines. So uh, I know they can relate to that. So uh, once again, I want to say thank you for uh, for coming on the show. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for your interest and. Um, thanks for um, really trying to just uh, talk more about some of the importance of, of human wildlife interactions, right? So yeah. I think it's um, important for urban biodiversity is, is thinking that, that humans are part of nature and we're, we're part of conservation. So. Well, we're animals too. Yeah. We are. <laughs> you might get some arguments on that, but we're animals too. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Animalia. Animalia, exactly. Thanks again, Heather. <laughs> Thank you. That's it for episode 44. I want to thank Dr. Heather Bateman for coming on the show and helping me plumb the depths of serpent-human interactions. And I have a link in the show notes to the paper authored by Heather and her colleagues. And if you have any problems getting the PDF of the paper, drop me an email and I will send you a copy. Also in the show notes is a link to a cool short video that ASU, Arizona State University, uh, they put out in the support of the publication. And it features Dr. Bateman and friend of the show, Brian Hughes. So check it out. And thanks once again to all of the patrons of the show. Your support keeps the show rolling on into the foreseeable future. And I'm very grateful for that. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at SoMuchPingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests and some other cool herpsters. And you can reach me directly via email at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.